bodily autonomy is the thing also is a through line is a thread that ties um, many of our like, social justice movements that all of course intersect with one another um, whether it's reproductive justice uh, racial justice economic justice environmental justice what what it's about like our right to to, to bodily autonomy right and to um, to be safe and not harmed and not murdered by the system. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hello, Narcotica listeners. Welcome to episode 20. We are officially a year into this adventure, and we've managed to average a little more than one and a half shows per month. Not bad, considering we do all the podcast work on top of our super well-paid journalism gigs. Of course, we don't do this for the money, but seriously, if you dig our show, please hit up our Patreon and contribute. You keep us ad-free and independent. But really, though, this show is fun to make, and we believe there is a hunger for drug policy and harm reduction news, journalism, and content that doesn't suck and isn't premised on drugs are bad, okay. There is also pretty much an infinite pool of insanely passionate, dedicated, and no-bullshit people in the harm reduction, drug user, and drug policy community, and we get to talk to them, and we want to talk to basically everyone out there. So, speaking of, of passionate people who we promise doesn't suck, on today's episode, we're sitting with Eliza Wheeler, hailing from Oakland, California. Eliza is an overdose prevention strategist at the Harm Reduction Coalition. She's an all-around badass, distributing naloxone, syringes, and is working on a huge drug-checking project. Eliza, what's up? Welcome to Narcotica. Hi, Zach. Hey, so, how you doing? So, we've got lots to talk about today. First, want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your job. What does overdose prevention look like right now in Oakland, California? Sure. So, um, I work out here in the Bay Area at the Harm Reduction Coalition, and um, I've been here for about 10 years. Uh, and going on about 20 in harm reduction, I worked back east um, at a syringe exchange program for just about a decade before coming to California. And um, I've been here for a while, and part of my role is working with the DOPE Project, which is San Francisco's um, naloxone distribution program. It's been around since uh, 2001. Um, and distributes naloxone and kind of coordinates a lot of overdose prevention work and drug checking work in San Francisco. So part of that is um, what I work on with a, a rad team of people um, in San Francisco. And then I also do um, national work, uh, sort of making sure or trying to make sure that harm reduction programs um, have access to naloxone for distribution to people who use drugs. Um, and that is work that I um, gratefully uh, and respectfully do in um, Dan Biggs' uh, 
footsteps and, and with all respect to his original vision. We all miss Dan. And so when it comes to like naloxone access, I think a lot of people sort of feel like, okay, we got these laws on the books and nalox there's a lot of money, you know, being poured into naloxone. And so that automatically means voila, naloxone access is solved. And like, that's not right, right? Like naloxone is still very much not accessible. Yeah. Um, so they, uh, I'm really glad you brought this up. Um, this is sort of the primary thing that I work on every day of my life and um, with, uh, with a, a lot of other people. And, you know, the history of naloxone access in this country um, you know, naloxone's been around for a long time, since the early 70s, and uh, the Chicago Recovery Alliance and Dan um, and the great folks that worked at CRA with Dan uh, started distributing it in, in 96. And then this was really just a harm reduction. This was just something that harm reduction programs and syringe exchanges did. Um, for many, many years with kind of no recognition or no sort of mainstream public health buy-in um, for a really long time. Like there was some early health departments that did kind of get on board, um, you know, New Mexico and even here in San Francisco in the early 2000s um, was supporting the Laxone distribution, but it didn't really sort of get mainstream attention until probably 2010 or so. Um, and then really kicked up steam around 2014. So the last five years, there's been like this massive kind of um, uh, swallowing of naloxone access as by the kind of medical and public health establishment and law enforcement. Well, so cops need naloxone to make sure they don't, you know, die from from being near fentanyl, right? Ugh. Um, yeah, yeah, they sure do. They're at grave risk of t touching drugs. Um, and so they have like a genetic predisposition to scientific impossibilities. Um, and so, you know, the, the frustrating piece is, you know, in, in the earlier days of naloxone access, it was like, you know, you got all this pushback. Um, there were no resource, hardly any resources, um, money or, or access to naloxone was limited and difficult and, and, um, and really uh, limited to harm reduction programs, right? And, and people were still kind of throwing out the, um, oh, you know, is this really something we should, this seems pretty radical. I mean, at the program that I used to work at in, in Massachusetts, like we had to give out, um, we, I worked at a syringe exchange that was, um, you know, funded by the state health department and kind of limited by the sort of fears of, of um, oh, if we do this thing that's like not sanctioned, we could get shut down. And so we partnered with, um, you know, a group of badasses, New uh, England Prevention Alliance um, in Massachusetts who did like underground naloxone access and we would have to have people, you know, wait outside um, with naloxone and we'd send folks that were coming for syringe exchange to go outside and get it. And this is how it worked for a long, long time, most places. And then, um, and fast forward, like today, the problem is 
not money and resources into Laxalt. Like there's millions and millions and millions of dollars, millions of dollars um, coming through state agencies uh, from federal funding uh, for naloxone. Um, California got uh, $44 million um, of SOR money, which is uh, state opioid response grant money just for naloxone. Um, so it's like inordinate amounts of money and resources for naloxone coming through states, but still the programs doing like on the ground work to make sure that folks who use drugs, peers, um, their community has access to naloxone is still a struggle. Like there are states where all that naloxone went to cops. There are states where that naloxone went to health departments who have no idea who to give it to or are just doing like community naloxone giveaways that aren't, that are reaching folks who are maybe concerned but aren't um, folks who use drugs aren't in the places where naloxone is going to get used and where it's needed the most. So the whole kind of, it's, the problem has shifted to from like, we have no money, we have no naloxone and no one's taking us seriously to there's tons of money and tons of resources and we can't get access to it. So here in Pennsylvania, we have a standing order, you know, um, from the from the governor the end of, and the State Department of Health. Um, it's, uh, you know, an open prescription for just about anybody who wants it. And yet there are still pharmacies that don't stock it. Um, there's a lack of information in many cases about um, where uh, where to get it and that the standing order even exists. Um, fortunately, here in Philadelphia, uh, we have a Department of Health that has pushed it in the hands of, of uh, community organizations yeah. that are getting it out. But what would you say is, um, is the biggest impediment um, uh, to uh, getting it into the hands of uh, on on the ground, you know, drug users who, uh, in my experience, do the most reversals. Well, and so you know, this is where I like piss people off sometimes. And do it. So <laughs> for me, and and like, I never. I I'm not saying that there's a certain way that. We, like, I'm not saying we shouldn't have pharmacy access, okay? Let me just get that out of the way. Like, I'm not saying that pharmacies shouldn't be providing access to naloxone. I would never say there's any particular place that shouldn't be providing access to naloxone. However, like, this is not a thing that works in a medical model. It's just not. Because, like, for me, the original intention, what of what CRA and what Dan did and what the early people working in harm reduction and syringe exchange who were distributing naloxone, like the whole point is that people who use drugs are systematically excluded, abused, and harassed by the medical establishment and the criminal justice establishment. And until those systems can fix themselves, um, People need access to the resources outside of a medical model. And so there's a reason why pharmacy access doesn't work. Like by volume, community-based naloxone distribution programs, meaning mostly harm reduction programs and syringe exchanges, gave out so much more naloxone last year than anything that came through pharmacies 
and co-prescription through doctors because because that's how this works. Like that is how this was originally envisioned. That's what, if you want to talk about research or science, like not that anyone in this country cares about that, but like if all of the research and all of the studies talking about the effectiveness and the laxone distribution are based on looking at community-based distribution and syringe exchanges. So what, a, what happens? So you have all these studies that show that community-based distribution works. People look at them and they're like, great, so we're going to give it out at the pharmacies. To push back just a little, just a little bit on that, um, you know, where, where resources are limited, oftentimes people that are on Medicaid here, you know, you know can get this for free. Um, and, and then, so we, we've run into problems where the syringe exchange programs are strapped for resources. And yeah. so they've had to divert people to pharmacies where they can get it for free, right? You know, um, so that would probably be a resource issue. But there's also the stigma um, uh, that's attached to, to, the, to, the, to injectables here. Um, so, you know, pretty much all that's distributed is the nasal naloxone, which is effective, but also costly. Um, how much does stigma play into this? I mean, huge, right? I mean, and so there's stigma around pharmacies, right? There's also access issues around pharmacies. Like, you know, for a lot of our, um, you know, friends working in like rural places and places that are geographically remote, like there's no pharmacy to go to anyway, right? Um, and so, so there's a lot of issues with um, putting all of your um, attention and resources and focus on expanding pharmacy access. The other thing that you asked about is like the stigma around injectables. So injectable naloxone is what has been distributed in this country for 23 years. Sorry, I just had to do math in my head there. Um, and, you know, um, our program here in San Francisco gave out 30,000 doses of injectable naloxone last year to folks who use drugs. Like, there, there is, um, we are in a country where injectable medicines are prescribed and given to lay people all the time. Insulin, uh, hormone replacement therapy, IVF, you name it. Like there are medicines that are injected that come through our healthcare system. But as soon as we're talking about um, giving folks uh, an injectable form of naloxone, all of a sudden there's like, oh my God, what if somebody, there's a needle stick, people will never be able to learn how to use the needle. I mean, these really unfounded and sort of nonsensical arguments against injectable naloxone, like sure, the nasal ones are great. Like if, if they were free or a dollar um, or somewhere around the cost of you know, around a dollar, then sure, that would be great to give everyone access to nasal. Um, but that's not the case. And that's not what the landscape of naloxone access for programs looks like. Um, so if, if I were to like, for my program here, if I were to rely just on the free nasal that I can get from the state, I would never have enough to actually meet the demand in this community. Right. So like, I have to use injectable because injectable is the only form of naloxone that we have access to that's free or extremely low cost. Right. And so, um, so in order for me to actually get enough out the door to, um, 
to just the one place that my program is focused on, which is San Francisco, like we have to do injectable because there's no way I could rely on the one source of, of nasal. Um, and you know, the, the, you know, Maya and Maya Do Simpkins, um, and Dan Big and I, uh, we collectively, um, sort of managed, uh, naloxone buyers club for harm reduction programs. Um, Maya and I still do, um, very much like in Dan's honor and memory and, um, and spirit. And so that buyers club has about, you know, a hundred programs that belong to it that are harm reduction programs in like 34 different states. And collectively that buyers club distributed 900,000 doses of injectable last year, which is more than went out through every pharmacy in this country. From that distribution network, it's actually going to where it's most effective, right? Like yes. either people who use drugs or their yes. peers. And the you have to be, yeah, to be part of that buyer's club, you essentially have to be a program who's primarily distributing to folks who use drugs and um, in their community. So um, we, we don't allow people to be part of that buyer's club if they're like giving all the naloxone to law enforcement or something. The dog, the dog barking, you have to blame on on uh, a source of mine named Mike, who actually just showed up as I'm sitting in my car and walked up. And Mike has Mike has done a dozen reversals, you know, himself. Um, and so, you know, like he's kind of a hero, and I'd like to give a shout out to him. Uh, but uh, um, so, what's up, Mike? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And and so I just invited Mike into the car and. Um, I'll 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 uh, give him just a minute to tell you um, what it was like living on the street over the winter and ha and uh, being basically a walking community health provider for the most part. Uh, Mike, how many how many how many reversals did you do? Uh, First of all, am I getting paid for this, dude? <laughs> because I'm sick and tired of helping the world and giving up all my personal story and history for nothing. I'm yeah, joking. <laughs> Um, you know, but, but we're talking about naloxone and, um, you know, fortunately there's a lot of it in Philadelphia. You always had plentiful access to it, but, um, you know, on a, on a weekly basis, I mean, how many reversals would you witness on the street or, and then how many would you, would, would you do over the time you were living on the street? Well, I've only done 15 successful, I've done 15 reversals only. Well, I'm happy and proud about 15, but. Out of the 15, they were all successful and everyone uh, was revived. Uh, but I have witnessed an average of uh, probably five uh, overdoses a week, five to ten, I would average. I average at least one or two a day if I'm in Kensington walking around, maybe three a day. I would honestly say that would not be exaggerating. So there you go. Right. It's It's wild that, you know all the resources aren't going to people like Mike and instead we get stories about dogs having their own personal stash and, 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 and cops sitting on cases of it just in case their buddies get, get panicky. Like this kind of stuff drives me crazy. Yeah. It's, it's like really uh, maddening and um, yeah. I mean, we have the same stories every day here, you know, it's like people, um, you know, have seen, you know, two, three overdoses a day or week. People are reversing overdoses constantly. Like it's just become 
um, you know, normal practice, especially in cities that have really great access to naloxone, which thankfully some cities do. So, so moving off of, of naloxone, a sort of new yeah. frontier, which, you know, it's not exactly a new idea, but passing out fentanyl test strips. And, uh-huh. and so community organizations do this now. And so while illicit fentanyl is pretty much taken over on the East Coast, where Chris and Mike are, on the West Coast, black tar pretty much dominates the market. And so is there illicit fentanyl in the tar yet? And apologies for the Game of Thrones reference, my first and only one on the show, I swear, is fentanyl coming? And if you're outside, when that happens, will you die? Well, uh, so, I mean, I can really just, I can only speak really in detail about what's happening right here where where I am focused, which is San Francisco. And so we have had fentanyl um, since 2015 for, for, um, the consistently, right. So, you know, any, anybody who's been around for a while knows that fentanyl has always kind of come and go in these weird little blips over time. But, you know, the, the current way that we're talking about fentanyl, like through East coast around 2013, and then we started seeing it in San Francisco in 2015 in the summer. And, um, it, what that looked like for us is, is really interesting because so we have, tar we have black right and so the fentanyl looks totally different from the heroin right and so um it at first when it first appeared in 2015 where people were saying like oh it's china white it's china white um which um they were saying like meaning with like east coast like powder heroin right but um but it it was fentanyl. And so, and then by, you know, by 2017, it was firmly like present in the San Francisco drug market. So, but the, the way that it's sold here is separately from tar. And so we have had some um, tar test positive for fentanyl for sure. But for the most part, um, we're seeing it sold separately. Uh, so, and often from the same people, so you can get black or you can get fentanyl, um, and that, and it's been kind of, I would say kind of scaled up, um, since, yeah, like mid last year, um, it's pretty much ubiquitous, and, uh, it's really interesting, like, we're seeing tons of, and I have never seen this before, and like I said, I've been doing, uh, harm reduction work for, you know, officially for 20, almost 20 years. And I have never seen this happen, but we're seeing a ton of people like switching from injecting to smoking. Um, so people are smoking fentanyl and foil with straw. And, um, and, you know, and in San Francisco, we have so much, uh, um, you know, folks are using outside and in public. So you can literally like see this happening, like where there would be groups of people injecting. Now you're just like seeing groups of people smoking. Is is the overdose risk higher for injecting tar versus smoking fentanyl? Like injecting tar versus smoking fentanyl. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, it depends because it depends because our tar is of like highly, changeable quality (laughs) um and so uh 
you know, some days it's good and some days it's crap. And, um, and so, you know, you hear people say that you can get like an equivalent high from smoking fentanyl to shooting dope, sort of like, got it. And so, um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's a totally, I've never seen anything like that happen, but you know, people are brilliant and adaptable and resilient and, and don't want to die. They want to use drugs and not die. (laughs) Are are, are people liking the testing strips? Like it's just, it's a pretty limited piece of information that people get, but do they say like, Oh, like, this is great. Thank you. Or are they like, nah, I don't care. Well, so we started, you know, after Tino and uh, Tino Fuentes, who I know you've talked to and Jess and um, Jess Tilly and, and folks on the East Coast um, started kind of giving out the test strips and seeing some positive results. And, you know, we sort of were like, oh, what are you guys doing? And um, we started giving them out in 2017, like really, really small, just, you know, like a couple at some of the sites to see if people like them. And then shortly after that, the our state health department um, decided to add them to the supply list that was available to California syringe exchange programs. Um, so any California syringe exchange at, um, in late 2017 could just um, get fentanyl test strips for distribution. So lots of programs started um, giving them out uh, at, at syringe exchange. And, um, you know, I think that people, I think that they're really they have pros and cons. I think that um, we have a really strange drug supply, right? So people were, um, people were like, well, if it's powder, it just is fentanyl, kind (laughs) of, you know, and um, so after a while, I think, I think we, the program still give them out, and people really like them, and we get people come and get a bunch, and, um, and use them, and then and then other folks um, kind of used them for a while and they were like, okay, I get it. And um, they were really helpful for me to kind of help understand a little bit about what I was using. But um, more recently, we started doing a project um, where we're taking samples from, from folks from drugs that they're concerned about and then actually bringing them to the lab for um, like LCMS testing. Um, which, and then returning the results back to the people who gave the samples and to the whole community for them to see. Um, So we just started this a couple months ago um, in like seriously doing it. We used to do it haphazardly and now we're sort of um, doing it a little bit more methodically. And so that actually tells people like exactly what's in the fentanyl and exactly what's in the heroin and in the cocaine or whatever. And um, like anything that they're sort of worried about. And people have so far, sometimes people are like, eh, I don't care. And other times people are like totally fascinated and, um, and, and it's like really opens up a lot of conversation. And, you know, overall, I think that, um, you know, I've been thinking so much about, because we keep getting this question of like, okay, well, prove what, what's the point of doing drug checking, right? Like, what's the point of doing test strips or doing 
any kind of drug checking, like how are you going to prove that people change their behavior or whatever? And I was like, I actually don't think that this is about getting people to do anything or to change their behavior. For me, it's about like people's right to bodily autonomy and to consent to the drugs they're putting in their body, right? Like the like the drug war and prohibition has made the drugs so dangerous and so inconsistent and so ever-changing and people have no idea what's in them, right? And so um, that's, that's, that is criminal to me, you know? And, and you know, with every other product, uh, you know, you have to have a label on the back that says what's in it. And so for me, all we're doing is like, making a label. <laughs> Tino and I have had this conversation many times, you know, uh, I felt, um, to me, you know, obviously it's different out here in the sense that, that, that all, all our heroin is powdered. So, so it was, it was a, a useful tool for me to determine, you know, as an academically how the, you know, the mixtures were changing, you know, uh, cause we generally see a lot of blends um, I started testing cocaine uh, and finding trace amounts in there. But for the most part, by the time the Department of Health picked it up and um, and I had a, a, a brief meeting with um, they brought on a harm reduction coordinator uh, and they, they ordered, um, I guess, about 14,000 strips or something. But by, by that time, people had acquired, you know, a fentanyl a taste for fentanyl and 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 uh, we we got more people that were using it to verify that there was fentanyl in their dope rather than the other way around um uh so you know but i i still think it, it provides the opportunity to dispel some myths um if it like you know if it's brown it's dope if it's you know which is obviously complete bullshit because all you need to do is toast the the mannitol for a little bit to get it that brown color, um, you know. So that that could be cut. Um, but it it's yeah. you know so. Um, but it's here our problem now, uh, as you, I'm sure you were aware over the summer. You know, we've had outbreaks of synthetic cannabinoids turning up in in yeah. in the heroin bags, and um, there's no strip for that. I've I've finally been working with a lab. I, I, had one sample tested recently that was positive, um, you know, and that's something that just can't be tested for without more sophisticated equipment. Um, right. And uh, but I think for people that don't use opioids, um, it could be it could be a, a, a really important tool still. Um, crack smokers, um, you know, oh, people who yeah. use cocaine, meth. Why would you not give people access to strips? Right. Like to me, it, it's like. I, I don't understand anyone's argument against it. Like, it, it, and that's not to say, like, maybe not 100% of people will find them useful, but why would you withhold them from people, right? Like, everyone should be at least offering them and giving them out and providing access to them. They're a great tool, right? And they're, um, and, you know, it's, they have opened up the conversation in so many different ways, Um to even just opening up the conversation around the right to know what's in your drugs, right? Like sometimes it's the, that's the first time had that conversation is like, oh, you actually just deserve the right to know what's in that, those drugs. And people are like, yeah, I fucking do, <laughs> you know? And um, so, you know, there, there to me, it's like, 
yeah, we need to be doing test strips and we need to be doing like all kinds of other drug checking. And, and to me, it's so paternalistic. It's such a like bureaucrat health department thing to like, like come up with reasons to withhold a resource. Yeah. And I, I think that's exactly what I, I, I want to transition into. And so like we, we've talked offline a bit about frustrations over harm reduction being co-opted and diluted. And, you know, you have told me about this. A lot of other people have Jess Tilly and Albie Park talked about this recently with us. And can you explain like, I don't know, some of the dangers or roadblocks that middle management, public health kind of bureaucrats pose to the kinds of radical ideas you're talking about? Like, are there a bunch of like literal of like liberal Leslie Nopes running around city government kind of messing shit up? Or is it more like federal people over at SAMHSA who don't think drug users are rational and can't be in possession of test strips and things like that? Like, what's sort of the breakdown here when it comes to your style of harm reduction versus the quantified and bureaucratized public health kind of harm reduction? I mean, I think the answer to that is everything that you just said. So I, and I loved what, you know, if, if people are listening to this and they haven't already listened to Justin Albee's interview that you, that you all did, um, definitely just stop this and go back to listen to that first. Um, and, you know, something that Jess said, Jess Tilly said in the, the interview that you all did with her was that a lot of what we're seeing is like this pro-overdose prevention and anti-drug user, anti-drug use kind of messaging. So like health departments, I feel like, and of course there are, because for any of my beloved friends who work for health departments who are listening to this and getting mad at me, it's like, yes, there are good people that work in health departments <laughs> and there are health departments that have made really good decisions about how to allocate resources and how to get community programs and how to center harm reduction people as experts. That all does happen. But as a system in this country and as a rule in this country, it's not the way it goes. And there is such like deeply embedded stigma around drug use and they're also just, to me, it's like, it's always this thing of, um, it's fascinating to me. Like, I, yeah, I was recently doing a training and there was both law enforcement and like public health people in the, in the community session. And afterwards we were sort of talking about it and we we're like, you know, and people know how I feel about cops. And, and I was like, but you know what, I actually get more frustrated with public health people and bureaucrats than I do with law enforcement. Cause like, to me, it's that at least one, like law enforcement is sort of like, it's hierarchical. It's just a fucked up toxic system in general. And like, it just needs to be completely abolished. But public health is supposed to be serving the health of the public. <laughs> and the amount of like just choking on their own bureaucracy that they do and create is crazy to me. Like just creating rules and regulations and things to like, just thinking about naloxone specifically, like dealing with states that have, you know, created these 
regulations and rules around even getting access to naloxone and deeming it a dangerous drug and programs that want to distribute it have to get a special license from the board of pharmacy to distribute it and only medical people are allowed to give it out and you have to have these elaborate standing orders and um you know make people sit there for an hour long powerpoint training on how to use naloxone before you give it to them when really um, it should just be like over the counter it's insane or or just like you know throw it in a backpack and go give it out <laughs> like or just you know ha have it at your syringe service program or syringe access program and give it out and if someone says like hey you know, I need, I need 50 kits because I live in a camp or I live here or I know all these people that don't come to this program and I can distribute it. Then you give them 50 kits and they go distribute, you know, it's like the, the amount of um, like control over resources. And it's the same with syringe services programs or syringe exchanges too, you know, um, so many of the programs are doing, you know, Justin Alvin mentioned this too, like doing one for one again and doing, um, you know, uh, these really onerous regulations on how syringe, syringe services programs, syringe exchanges work. Uh, it's just, um, to me, it's just about stigma and like a deep distrust and, and hatred of people who use drugs and, a, and, a, and not centering that, con like the radicalism and the, the ideas around, like the fact that harm reduction is ultimately a social justice movement, right? That is about the dismantling of systems that are, are harmful and, um, and, and rob us of our autonomy in this world right like that you know the um the focus on the sort of the kind of taking everything that is harm reduction and distilling it down to its um its interventions right albie said this i'm just like quoting those guys um <laughs> but it's funny that you bring up the like the politics of harm reduction is like is like it's there's it's for many, I think, in the public health world, harm reduction is just seen as a pathway to treatment rather than true harm reduction, yeah. right? Um, and then there's that, then there's like the syringe exchange programs that fire somebody for using or like, which just seems crazy to me, you know, um, like you're sending this sort of double message of like, you know, uh, you know, you're you're deserving as long as you're in recovery, uh, you know, uh, but if you know, you're an active user, like, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that that um, that I've seen that certainly play out where where um, and it's politics, you know, it's, it's like, it's, yeah. it's just distasteful to some in, you know, the political realm to meet user to just accept that harm reduction is just for simple, like, per, the simple purpose of keeping people alive not ultimately getting them onto a suboxone program or, or something like that, you know? Um, and that's, we're, yeah. we're seeing that come up with now with, with um, supervised injection, which, you know, the talking points around that always sort of revolve around, well, you know, we're going to meet them and sort of like get them transitioned ultimately into a program of some sort, which is really not the purpose of a supervised consumption site. Well, and, and I think that that comes down to, um, you know, a lot of things like we, we were, we were recently doing this thing and it was a, a 
place where they were thinking of implementing a syringe exchange and they wanted to do some um, like brainstorming around what would happen if there was pushback from the community, right? And so the issue of like improperly discarded syringes came up um, as one thing and, uh, you know, syringes on the ground, right? And, um, and, and we, I asked them, I was like, what, what would happen if you just reacted to that pushback and said, you know, syringes on the ground is actually not a syringe problem. It's a people being unhoused and people using outside. That's what that's related to. If people are inside and they're somewhere safe um, or they're somewhere inside, they, they don't come outside and dump their needles on the ground. No one does that, right? And so the it's like a, it's a focus on the wrong part of the problem or it's like asking all the wrong questions. And so, um, or they were worried about um, hearing, like having people say, um, like, oh, people are all gonna come from other communities to our community to use a syringe exchange. And I think that a mistake that we get in, even in harm reduction is like, um, kind of reacting to those pushback things with things that are not true, right? Like saying, well, no, no, that's not true. Everyone that comes to the syringe exchange is from here. Sometimes that's not true. Sometimes people are coming from other places, but what if we just said like, yeah, they're coming here because they don't have what they need where they live. And we've created a program that is so good and so loving and so perfectly meeting the needs of people in this community that people are coming from other places, but they will not say that. You know, they will not say that. They will not just own it and stand in like the rightness of harm reduction. The politics of this, it, they're so reactionary and people who support it cede so much ground linguistically and on the argumentative side of this where, you know, no matter what happens, if you do a syringe exchange, if you do a supervised consumption site, if you pass out test strips or distribute naloxone, no matter what you do, there are, there is going to be opposition. It's not like, you know, the the other side is 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 reasonably and in good faith, you know, arguing or worried about about saving lives and the the health and safety of their community. They just like we were saying moments ago have a deep distrust and distaste and stigma toward people who use drugs and, and the desire for social control. Yeah, and it, like I think the same thing is happening right now with like abortion in in Georgia or whatever. It's like, you know, okay, so we're going to ban it at 20 weeks. Okay, no, actually 14 weeks. Actually, no, sorry, 8 weeks and 6 weeks and then just outright. It's like if you give someone an inch, they're going to take a foot. And this constantly happens in in the harm reduction side of things. Yes, and you know, and I you know, to kind of bring it back to the, the drug checking question and, and, you know, I've recently been thinking about this so much because, um, you know, so we're working on this project where we get these samples and, and test them and, and, you know, already people are like, well, why, why are you doing that? Like, why are we, and, and it's like not even costing anyone anything, but still people are like, why are we going to put resources into this? And, or, you know, um, how are we going to measure the behavior change and all these questions, right? And so I've been thinking, like, how am I going to, how am I going to justify doing this based on um, what I believe is people's inherent right and, and, and freedom and, and like, 
right. And so I've been thinking a lot about this, like kind of how to, how to craft an argument and, you know, doing a lot of reading. And I was reading um, something the other day that uh, was from a couple years ago, actually, that was really talking about this idea. And I mentioned it a couple times of like the idea of bodily autonomy is the thing also is a through line is a thread that ties um, many of our like social justice movements that all of course intersect with one another, um, whether it's reproductive justice, uh, racial justice, economic justice, environmental justice, what, what it's about like our right to, to, to bodily autonomy, right. And to, um, to be safe and not harmed and not murdered by the system and not incarcerated and not, um, you know, subjugated and, and ill-treated by the medical establishment and to, to be able to be, um, you know, free. And so it's really hard when you're like, that's why we're doing drug checking and the health department's like, can you give me a five point, um, you know, deliverable timeline on the, you know, behavioral modifications that the people who use drugs are gonna make based on this information. You're like actually no and i don't care about that <laughs> yeah i mean I, I think that kind of thing really really speaks to the uh like quantification of social problems and in doing that we really lose sight of the the justice you were just alluding to and i think if we're just always going to be measuring uh outcomes and behavior change and this and that kind of thing on all these scales and we're we're really going to lose a lot of what brings people to want to save lives in the first place. And it's quite simply the right thing to do. Yeah. And, you know, and so I think that, um, you know, there's a couple sort of takeaways from that, right? Is that if you are working in a health department and you are in a position where um, you are the, let's say, the funder or the administrator of a contract that's, you know, contracting out harm reduction services to a community-based organization. It's like, you know, stand firm in, in like, the, the power of, like, true harm reduction practice to, to be transformative and to figure out how to support that, right? And it's possible. It's not impossible. You know, and, like, for example, you know, I, I cut my teeth in Massachusetts. I worked at um, the syringe exchange there in Cambridge, Massachusetts for a long time. And, um, you know, when, and so, like I said, we were working with um, some of my like hero, heroes and, and mentors doing syringe exchange and doing um, naloxone distribution, you know, Holly, Gary, Harry, Lino, um, all these people back in, in the early 2000s. And, when the state in 2006 and seven state of Massachusetts decided that they were going to get on board with naloxone distribution, they invited a bunch of people working in harm reduction to the table and were like, okay, we know you guys have been doing this. <laughs> and um, how do we do it? Like how, how do we do it? So it works. And, you know, of course, no system is perfect, but I would say, you know, from the start, like the, the rolling out of that program in Massachusetts at least, um, you know, really tried to get, tried to craft itself as best as it could as a state-run program based on the needs of um, 
of the community and the experience of the community as the experts of how to do that, right? And so it's it's possible. Um, and I also think that if you are a program that is not part of a health department and not getting access to health department money or resources or federal money or resources or state, then there is also a beautiful network of programs and people throughout this country that will help you get what you need to do what you need to do outside of that system. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. Like you're saying, some programs really do incorporate the, the bedrock principles of, of, of harm reduction and those programs, you know, do their best to, to stick to those values. And then, you know, in other instances, that's not the case and people need to work outside of the proper channels of in funding streams. And, and if that's the case, like what you're saying is like, there are, there are ways to, to stick to the values and principles outside of the mainstream channels right now, at least. least. Yeah. If that's your only option and you know, there, there always has been, and there always will be. Mm -hmm. And so to, to, to close this conversation now, you are leaving the harm reduction coalition soon. Um, do you want to talk about your feelings? Uh, no. Um, oh. Well, I mean, I think that, uh, so yeah, I've been, I've been here for 10 years and I'm, I'm doing this really weird thing where my actual first day at HRC was like July 7th, 10 years ago. And I'm leaving like almost on the exact same day. Cause I just think that that would, that's very tidy. So, um, which is sort of nuts, but, and also funny. And then when people are like, how long did you work at HRC? I can say 10 years exactly to the day. Um, anyway, <laughs> I just, you know, I, I have been doing this for 10 years now. And I also think that it's our responsibility as people doing this work, whether we are, um, whatever role, like I always feel like I've been sort of like a, um, doing a lot of behind the scenes stuff and, you know, kind of finagling, trying to get access to naloxone for programs and doing all these things. And, but sometimes it's like, we have to be responsible for when we have taken up space for a while and it's time to like do something else and get out of the way. And, um, and I feel like that it's my time for that right now and I feel like it's my time to just get out of the way and there are just like the most brilliant um badass amazing people in this community um you know folks you know new to harm reduction within the last like couple years five years um that are just doing incredible stuff with like absolute vision and um do you think that the overdose emergency like the national public health crisis has sort of radicalized a whole incoming generation to do this kind of work i i mean i think people's friends and and community and and partners and um you know people around them dying has of course yeah i mean of course i mean i think that's always radicalized everyone that's ever been involved in harm reduction you know i think that it's, it's always been about um, deeply personal loss um, that has, has motivated people to, um, to like, you know, drink the harm reduction Kool-Aid. <laughs> like the only thing that makes sense. And I imagine for, for a lot of people listening and especially, you know, people at the Harm Reduction Coalition like you, 
the idea that there's all of a sudden a a new epidemic just doesn't square with your experience like like people have been dying overdoses for forever and that this isn't something new just well and it's such a erasure of the amazing harm reduction that's happened in communities forever and maybe not even called that but but you know communities have been learning out learning how to take care of themselves despite of and in resistance to <laughs> um the systems that are harming them forever you know and so then yeah so i mean that's a whole other thing and i know you've had a lot of really brilliant people on talking about like the you know kind of re uh, visioning this whole narrative of the kind of opioid epidemic thing, which is, you know, really frustrating, some of the kind of dominant narratives. Um, and, and for most of, you know, I think it erases, um, I think it erases communities of color. I think it erases communities that have been impacted by drug use for generations um, that have, have been, uh, you know, I'm from a really rural part of um, New England, actually, and, you know, with kind of the quintessential, like, broken down factory towns in New England that, I mean, we've had heroin in the town where I grew up for, since the 80s. Um, Jess, and, Jess and I actually grew up together. <laughs> we were like uh, weird goths in high school together. <laughs> Um, and we're from the same part of Connecticut and, um, you know, there's been, there's been heroin in that part of Connecticut for, for decades, decades, you know, and people, um, people dying and people resisting and people taking care of one another too. And, and then the, the dreaded question, what's next? I have no idea. Six months ago when I was like, I think I'm going to leave in July and I just really need to do something else. And you know, um, just step out and kind of, you know, there's, there's just like, need some new eyes on this problem from, you know, where I sit and, and there's plenty of awesome people to, to take my place and it all seems great. And now it's like a month from now and I'm like, and I'm in the Bay Area. I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do, but whatever. <laughs> I'm going to figure it out. Um, but, you know, I also like work a bunch of syringe exchange shifts and and like still you know so maybe I, I might just go that's that's the only thing that ever really makes me happy anyway so yeah i'm just gonna go back to <laughs> go back to your roots go well, back there <laughs> i'm sure you will be missed and um yeah thank thank you so much for taking the time to talk yeah thank you and just uh you know thank you for doing this and for being committed to like you know telling telling a a, a more real story right like we all know that the media around drugs is horrifying so you're welcome we we, we do our best you listen to every episode so. <laughs> thanks for listening to narcotica Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. Our co-producer is Aaron Ferguson, and our theme music is by Glassboy. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. If you like the program and you want to support us, there are a few ways you can help. Tell a friend about us. Most podcasts become popular via word of mouth, 
or give us a decent rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash narcotica, where you'll get access to exclusive bonus content and help us pay our bills a little bit. We are so grateful for the people that make this program possible. We want to stay ad-free, and you guys help us do that. Thank you so much.